hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Following up on our I Told Sunset About You retrospective, we are going to move towards I Promised You the Moon. We brought a different collection of panelists this time. But before we get into Nini's session with the panelists, Nini wanted to first discuss Last Twilight in Phuket with just the two of us. Nini, describe what Last Twilight in Phuket is for the people who may have missed it because they only watched on Vicky. I'm not going to describe it because I'm just going to tell you, hit pause, go to YouTube, find it and watch it. I'll describe it for you. Let me describe it. I never get to describe anything anymore. So I'm going to try. I'm proud of you. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So Last Twilight in Phuket is a transition piece, if you will, between I Told Sunset About You and I Promised You the Moon that covers OAU's final day in Phuket. So they spend the whole day together. They wake up together. They go around town together. They discover that everything around them is changing in a very, very melancholy way that honestly made me want to pull my hair out, scream and cry all at the same time. And they recommit to each other and then they literally ride off into the moonlight on their way essentially to Bangkok. I feel like that covers it. I didn't do as well as Ben, but I think I covered everything. Last Twilight in Phuket is that summer after graduation before you go to college. It is the best summer of your life. It is a Brian Adams song. <laughs> <laughs> Last Twilight in Phuket is really fascinating as a choice overall. It's available on YouTube still. It's beautiful. You get this like 16-minute, almost short film-esque piece that is this huge release of some of the tension from Itse before you're heading into I Promise You the Moon. Like, I knew I Promise You the Moon was going to be a dramatic mess because Last Twilight in Phuket is tinged with this whole you-can't-go-back feeling about it. One of my favorite scenes is when they attempt to go to the beach together, and it's not the same because there's a bunch of people there. You get this feeling that they both wanted everything to be perfect between them, and it just cannot be, and it never will be. And I just really love as you called it, the melancholy hanging over 
that really beautiful experience because it's them saying goodbye to their hometown and everything that it means to them. They know this is the end of an era for themselves. And there's this trepidation about what's coming next that I eat up every time. As somebody who has left my home for an unknown space, an unknown place, at least twice in my life, there is that feeling of trepidation. There is that feeling that when you return, nothing's going to be the same. It's all going to be different. Having that actually brought to the fore in the way that everything is already different for them in terms of the places that they're accustomed to being, their tutoring school is closed down. The private beach that they went to is closed. Things that they had come to rely on, places and spaces in particular that they had come to rely on as their places were just gone. And what it sets up is that they have to now find new places and spaces not just because they're moving to another city, but even in their hometown. Their hometown's never going to be what it was. And they are never going to be the same boys who ran around Phuket crying at each other ever again. It's all going to be different. Everything's going to change. And that is sort of the essence of Last Twilight in Phuket. It's setting you up. It's preparing you for what's about to come. And it's also just saying goodbye to the things that have gone. It's saying goodbye even to the present moment. So even as things are happening, they're slipping away. My favorite scene in Last Twilight in Phuket is the scene where their beach is closed and they have to go to another beach that's more of a tourist beach and they're surrounded by people when they're accustomed to being alone in this kind of way. And you wonder like if Tay is going to be more reserved because now they're in public, but they're also like Ben brought up in the last episode. They're also in a tourist place. So they're surrounded by people. Yes, but they're surrounded by people who don't know them and who they don't know. So they're free in a way. They're open. And what that allows them to do, they can just be themselves with each other. Tay holds his hand. He puts his arm around him. He hugs him so tightly on that beach when O starts crying. It's such a beautiful scene. And it's just so vivid in my mind because of what it represents. They are, like I said, surrounded by people. But the way that the scene is shot... It's like they're the only two people in the world. That little short is so beautiful and it's the perfect, perfect, perfect way to close off the I Told Sunset About You story and open up the I Promised You the Moon story. I agree. You should watch it. It's good. And it's also free and it's available. There's no reason for you not to watch it. panel of I Promise to You the Moon experts. Our lovely transcription team, Ginny and Shan, 
hopped on this one, as well as, once again, friend of the pod more, Liazaki. And we were also joined by two new guests, Bookworm, Neurotic Bookworm on Tumblr, and Susan, Emotionally Charged Towel on Tumblr. And I think that we had a fabulous conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. So let's dive right in. Welcome, welcome, panel of experts. Yes, these are the I Promise You the Moon experts. Let's start with a an easy, like a softball question. How did you come to BL and how did you come to this I told Sunset about you, I promised you the moon story? Shine, let's start with you. I think I have a very unusual path to BL. I kind of came in via K-drama. Where Your Eyes Linger was my first one that I found when I was just perusing the next K-drama I wanted to watch. And then I realized that there was an entire genre of BL after I saw that and fell quickly down a rabbit hole. Discovered Thai BL. First Thai BL was Together because that was very popular at the time that I was looking around, which was in 2021. And quickly watched a whole ton of GMM TV shows before I Told Sunset About You came on my radar. And I was kind of blown away by it say it just felt so different from everything else I had seen of the genre. It felt in a lot of ways to me as a Westerner more familiar. It was kind of a classic coming of age story, a classic kind of queer awakening story that I had seen before in Western media in some ways, although very specific, I think, to a Thai queer experience in a way that was very new for me. Bookworm, you're up next on my list. How did you come to I Told Sunset About You and I Promised You the Moon? My first BL was Kim Porsche, which I watched in May of this year. And I then joined Tumblr just to meet some, I don't know, like-minded people, I suppose. And I made some friends. And then all of you immediately told me that I have to watch I Told Sunset About You. You had rules about how I had to watch it. So I did. I told Sunset about you with Aiden. And I watched I Promised You the Moon with Shan. This is very different from what I've watched so far. I've only watched around 20 shows approximately. But this feels more like, as Shan mentioned, more of a coming of age. It's also very much more Asian than the other shows that I've watched so far. It immerses itself into the culture. The characters have specific traits that are more Asian. Yeah, it was a very fun watch experience. Bookworm, you're like me. We keep the numbers low, but we go for the quality ones. Susan, how about you? It's funny because Shan was saying that it seems like an unusual path to go into BLs through K-drama, but that's what happened with me too. The first BL I ever watched was To My Star. I just kind of saw it as another K-drama. I didn't really pay very close attention to it. And it's not a show that really rewards like half attention. So it didn't really take hold until a bit later. And actually the first BL that got me really like watching a lot of BLs is Senpai, This Can't Be Love. I watched that one because it had two actors in it that were on Kamen Rider and my family are really into tokusatsu. That was kind of my path into the genre in general. And then 
of course, you can't read about this stuff, especially in communities like the Tumblr fan community, without hearing about I Told Sunset About You. There are some titles that sound more odd in English without a cultural context for the countries they come from. And those would kind of stick in my mind a little bit more. And then, of course, you know, I just heard glowing things. My big focus for a long time was and kind of still is Japanese BL. That's one of the reasons I hadn't watched it until just recently. Ben's going to love that. You know, Ben is a big, big fan of the Japanese BLs. Jenny, let's go to you. How did you end up here on our esteemed panel? I guess this is the Asian drama background group because I came in through sea dramas. I was deep in the untamed fandom from 2020 on and got into reading translations of Chinese Danmei BL novels and a few other adaptations that were available. Because I was studying Mandarin, I resisted getting into other Asian countries' dramas for a long time because I was like, this is language practice. But I saw gifts from Manner of Death, and I was like, wait, wait, they let the boys kiss? So then I had to get into BL. I actually held off on Itse for a long time because I'd been hearing that it was good, and I was like, I know a lot of these are okay and enjoyable, but not like quality. And I want to not blow through all the good ones right away. So I started saving it. And then more came out and more good shows came out. And I realized, oh, there's actually a rich field of quality dramas here. And then I just was like emotionally afraid because people kept talking about what an intense experience it was. So I didn't finally watch it until earlier this year. And it was everything that had been told to me. Frequently, when I go in expecting something to be intense, it's disappointing or, you know, it falls short of that. This series did not. That it certainly did not. More, I know you would have talked a little bit about the way that you came to BL on the It's a panel. So I want to kick off the next part of this with you. So we're coming off of It's a in the halcyon days of whenever we actually watched it. And we get to the end and boom, the story will continue. When you saw that more, what was your expectation of what we were going to get in this continuation of the story that ended up being I Promised You the Moon? What did you expect going into this? So when I am deeply attached to a story the way I was and will always be with it, say, I try to go into follow-ups to those stories with as close to zero expectations as possible. It's a defense mechanism. I'm just very afraid of being burned and disappointed. So I try to not let myself go down those mental rabbit holes of what could happen because getting stressed out and theorizing, it's not going to change the outcome. We're going to get what we're going to get. You hope that the writers will listen to the fans. You hope that they stay true to what we at least perceive to be the spirit and intention of the original story, but ultimately it is their story to tell. So I try to just get on board, strap myself in, enjoy the ride, whatever it's going to be. But my general expectation was that we would see some very relatable situations play out. So living on your own for the first time, being totally responsible for yourself, finding new friends, having very new experiences, especially for Tay and O, given where they grew up. Bangkok is such a different environment than Phuket. And all the while, they're trying to maintain friendships. They're trying to maintain their relationship. 
that age is just so exciting and terrifying and constantly in flux. And I expected, I promised you the moon to showcase that. And it absolutely delivered just in a much more gut-wrenching way than I ever maybe originally anticipated, but one that nonetheless still rang incredibly true to life, at least for me and to these characters, which at the end of the day is all I can really ask for as a viewer. Guts were wrenched and no mistake. Bookworm, you're a recent convert to the legend of epitome, as I like to call it. What did you expect having finished Itzy and getting ready to dive into epitome? What were your expectations of the story? When we got to the end of Itzy, one thing that was very clear for me was that Tin O were seemingly on the same page. They finally were talking to each other and listening to each other, but only on the burning desire that they share for each other, right? Everything else that encapsulated a relationship, they had to figure all of that out. And that was my expectation. Immediately after I ended, it's a, that was what popped into my head. And I wanted epitome to explore those um, aspects of their relationship, how they were going to figure out living together, how to spend time with each other, balance their schedules and all of the other boring things that come with the relationship. And I think, yeah, they they were pretty successful, I would say. Sean, I'm going to come to you next. What were you thinking of having ended Itsy, seeing that title card come up and then going into Epitome? What were you thinking that we might get? I came in with a lot of stuff already in my head about Epitome because as I tend to do, I had been lurking about on Tumblr. That's how I learned about this show in the first place. I probably never would have found this show without seeing people talk about it on Tumblr. So for both It's A and Epitome, like I kind of went in with a notion of what the discourse was around them. So similar to Bookworm, I felt that the next phase of the story would have to be them figuring out how to actually be in a relationship together, which frankly, is one of my very favorite reasons for a season two to exist (laughs) of romances, because we so rarely get that part of a romance story. But I also knew that there was a lot of fandom discontent around this second part of the story. I knew going in that there was a cheating plotline and that people were big mad about it. And I had seen the commentary from some people that Tay had been quote unquote ruined in the second part of the story and that he was quote unquote out of character and having seen it say and the quality of that production and the quality of the writing like some of the best writing I've seen anywhere in the genre I just didn't believe that was true at all (laughs) so I kind of went in honestly ready to like fight and just kind of like prove to myself that those takes were wrong I went in with a fighting spirit. Like, I don't believe that that's true. And I bet this story is so much better than they think. And that fandom just wasn't ready for it. So that's kind of honestly the posture that I took into the show. And, you know, spoiler alert, they were wrong. And I and we here on this panel, we're right. (laughs) Shan came in ready to box. What about you, Jenny? How did you feel going into I Promise You the Moon? What were your thoughts and expectations? Very similar to Shan, I had kind of picked up a lot about it by osmosis. I was sure that there was going to be a breakup. I had picked up that there might be cheating. 
and I knew that a lot of people hated Tay. I left Itse loving Tay so much and also seeing very clearly why people might hate him, the things about him that a lot of people would pick up and be really upset about. So I think I went in with my expectations pretty well set for all of that. And I was just excited to see how the story was going to play out. I also had a lot of trust in the writing and creative talent behind the show. So I was ready to be satisfied by the story. And I was. Coming to you, Susan, let's hear it. Well, I haven't seen I Promised You the Moon. I don't mind spoilers. I actually kind of like to be spoiled on almost everything as much as possible. As much as I seek out media that has really a lot of emotional themes, I also can't handle them very well. So knowing what I'm in for really helps me. And it doesn't seem to detract from the experience for me. It seems so self-contained. And so much about a certain moment in time. And it's so tied to the place. It makes it really hard to even picture what it would look like to tell this story at a different phase of life in another place. Everybody's a little bit fearful of second seasons and continuations of beloved shows. But if I'm really sold on the initial show, when I hear there's going to be more yeah, I'm nervous, but I'm just like, yeah, yeah, more. Okay, sure, great, yeah. Whatever you say, just give me more. This is one of the only times that I did kind of feel like hanging back for a moment and being like, how would that work? I don't even know. At the same time, I do usually prefer stories about established couples. It just gets at a kind of complexity that is really appealing. As exciting as getting together stories are, the established relationship story is usually kind of where the rubber meets the road. And I like when things get challenging and complicated and people definitely aren't being their best selves anymore. Things like that. Definitely there was a lot of that in Epitome. So I'm going to just switch things around a little bit. I want to talk about how Epitome is structured, the narrative structure of the story coming out of the very clear five-act structure, coming-of-age story that we got in Itse. And I want to really lean on Shan and Bookworm for this, starting with Bookworm. What are your thoughts on how I Promise You the Moon is structured and organized as a story? Well, when I went into the watch, I was already told that there were going to be a lot of time skips in the show compared to Itse. Itse was much more fluid and flowing and it was contained within, I think, just months. But when it came to Epitome, we had a lot of blocks of time that were left for us to fill. I expected the characters to have breaks like how the characters would have developed during the times that we have lost and there would be fractures in the character that we would see i expected that happen because that usually does happen when we have a lot of time skips but it was impressively well maintained through the time skips and it 
did not bother me as much as I expected that it would, maybe because I was informed beforehand that this is how narratively the structure of the two shows were different. Also, we see the boys grow up a lot more in the show, right? So there was a sense of sped up nature in the show that we did not get in its say as well. I have noticed the sense of discomfort around this narrative structure, but I felt pretty okay with it. Maybe it's just a personal preference or maybe it was because I had prior knowledge, but it felt fine to me. Sean, you want to pick up on that? I think that the way that we jump through time so much in Epitome is like the biggest obvious difference, right? So it's a was structured kind of like a five act story where each episode was a complete act. Big shift happens in the relationship in each episode. But Epitome is different. It's kind of, I think, a three act story split across five episodes. So you've got episodes one and two is act one, where it's the move to Bangkok. It's the new setting. It's the adjustment uh, to kind of moving into an adult phase of their relationship and then into the first fracture in their relationship related to some of the adult choices that they're having to make. That's kind of act one. And then there's a big time skip between episode two and episode three. And episodes three and four are like act two. There's a pretty short time period that both of those episodes span across, like maybe only a few weeks of time. And that's, of course, the big, big fracture in the relationship when Tay begins to really drift away from Oeo and ends up kissing Jai and all of the fallout of that that we saw play out. And then there's another big time skip after the end of episode four and we head into episode five, which is their kind of time apart and then their reconciliation. So it really kind of feels like three acts kind of spread unevenly across five episodes. And each of those installments is paced differently. So I can see how... And, you know, I think I felt some of this myself as a viewer. It feels a little bit, I think, hard to kind of keep your bearings in the story. Whereas in Itse, you were on one continuous fluid ride, like Bookworm said. Epitome also has to fall back on some filmmaking tricks that Itse really didn't use, I think, because of this structure. Things like using a lot more flashbacks, using repeating scenes. It's I really didn't do that at all, but it happens quite a bit in Epitome, kind of trying to remind the audience and ground them in things that have happened because they're skipping through time so much. One of the things that I think is maybe an intentional result of that different structure is about the emotional tone of the two stories. It's a, it's very emotionally immersive. Like I think on the panel discussion that you all had about It's a, you talked about how These boys are constantly crying. The emotions are big, right? And that feels very in line with one continuous emotional story, a coming of age story about young boys who are kind of coming into themselves and understanding themselves for the first time. Epitome, by contrast, feels a little bit more even keeled. Like there are emotions, but they're not quite as big. There's a little bit of a remove. And I think that's because they're adults now. Think about the way Tay cries in Itse versus how he cries in Epitome. In Itse, he's like honking, crying, right? He's got like snot dripping down his face, losing his shit, curling into a ball. He has no control at all. In Epitome, when he cries, it's not like that. He does have to kind of keep a lid on it a little bit. He doesn't go quite as deep into his emotions. And so I think 
the way that the narrative structure is set up kind of lends itself to that more adult feeling of having to restrain your emotions a little bit and keep getting on with things and not being able to just kind of wallow in the way that they could when they were young. I don't think that one of these styles is better than the other. I think they are just different. And I think that as a viewer, we're probably all going to have a preference there. My preference, personally, I like big emotion, you know? And one of the things that Bookworm and I talked about around this was how there's a little bit of a Western, Eastern dichotomy here as well. I'm a Westerner. I like the bigness of the emotion in it's say That really resonates for me. Whereas for Bookworm, the kind of more emotional restraint that we see in Epitome resonate a little more for her. And I don't know if you wanted to comment on that at all, Bookworm. Yeah, the bigness of emotions in Itse was definitely a factor that disengaged me from the emotion. For me, whenever a character on the screen does not want to feel something and wants to keep it inside themselves and struggling to do so, and you can see it on the face, the struggle to keep their composure while having all of this emotional turmoil within themselves, that is what will make me feel all of the emotions that they are trying to feel. I didn't really get that sort of immersion when I watched Itse because Tay and O did all of the crying themselves. They cried constantly. They cried in classrooms. They cried around their friends. There's just a lot of crying. When it came to Epitome, the emotions were much more subdued in both of the big moments in O and Tay's relationship when it came to heads. In episode four, when they fought and afterwards, Tay goes to Q's house to talk to O. In both of those moments, both of them were angry. They were confused. And Tay was having the moment of realization of how he has fucked this up. And all of those emotions were dialed way back down. And I definitely felt much more immersed into the story when it came to epitome than I felt in Itsei. It's really interesting that that's the stuff that you guys picked up on because in watching the documentaries, and I don't know how many of you have watched the epitome documentaries as yet, but one of the things that the director, Min Tasafon Riantong, talks about, particularly in that scene in episode four that you mentioned, Bookworm, is about how when they were doing it, they had to do multiple takes because Bilkin was crying too much. He was being too emotional and he needed him to dial it back because he's a grown-up now. It was definitely deliberate on the part of the director. While we're on the topic of how Owen Tay are handling emotion, let's delve a little bit into their characteristics and how that even led them to be where they are in the rift that they have in Epitome. I'm going to start with more here. I want to talk a little bit about the different ways that Teano handle conflict and the different ways that they deal with their relationship and how that led them to be in such a pickle <laughs> during I Promise You the Moon. That's a very generous way of putting what happened. It was definitely a pickle. 
they approach conflict, I think, in polar opposite ways. O wants to talk things through, typically. He's more measured in his approach. You can tell, even in Itse, when they're still in high school, that he will kind of wait and absorb and observe. But he wants to be open. He wants to talk things through. And he's very self-aware. Whereas Tay doesn't know what he's doing or what's going on. Some of y'all have heard me use this analogy 1,200 times already, and I'm sorry. But for me, it always comes down to Tay being the equivalent of a human bulldozer. That man, he feels and he acts first, second, and third. And then he maybe thinks fourth or fifth on a good day. And I think part of that is just his personality. He's extremely passionate. He has been since he was a kid. And that passion is one of the things that drew O to him in the first place. I also think that O was basically Tay's touchstone in many ways from the time that they were kids. So when that relationship was severed, we never got evidence of any other connection that ever came close to that level for Tay. So I think in a way, Tay's emotional intelligence got stunted a little bit when that friendship stopped. And you can really see the difference, the contrast with O when they meet up again later in Itse. O seems to make friends easily. He's well-liked. He's already incredibly self-aware and comfortable with who he is. When he gets into university, one of the first things O does is seek out community. He values relationships. Like I said before, he's more measured in his approach to life and to friendships. And because of that, he has this emotional maturity and awareness going into IPTM, as I call it, <laughs> that's light years beyond Tay. Tay just doesn't know how to put what he's feeling into words. And beyond that, Tay doesn't even seem to be aware of how he's really feeling in make or break moments that really count. It takes him much longer to process it and be able to communicate that. To top it off, Tay's tunnel vision is so focused on becoming an actor, and the friendships he makes are either accidental or they're initiated by other people, and he seems to minimally invest in them, except for once Jai had him under his spell, of course. Tay also wants things to stay exactly the same. We see that a ton in I Promise You the Moon. Tay just does not cope well with change. It's like he wants to willfully ignore that it's an unavoidable part of life. When their friendship ended initially, Tay lost the main person in his life who, in my opinion, challenged him, which O did just by nature of being himself. O doesn't have Tay's one-track mind determination, which of course brings its own set of issues and insecurities for O, but it also opens him up to seeing more possibilities something that Tay has a hard time even conceptualizing. And I think because of this, Tay got even more one-track-minded once he started drifting away from O and IPTM. Tay's basically rigid in a time where it is crucial to be flexible. He's blind to the fact that not everyone operates in the same way he does, especially his partner. So basically, you have these two people coming into this relationship with incredibly different ways of approaching life, one partner with subpar communication skills, and I'm being generous with that, and they're in a new environment with new routines, new people, new challenges. These are differences that may have never become an issue in a friendship, but a romantic relationship. You can have the best intentions in the world, but when you have that much fundamental imbalance in an intimate relationship, that's a powder keg ready to explode. It leaves the perfect window of opportunity for snakes like Jai 
to take advantage of that at the first chance that they get. Yes, join me in the Jai is a snake corner over here. I want to come to you, Susan, actually, because having not watched I Promise You the Moon and just listening to everybody else talk about how Tay and O have progressed within I Promise You the Moon and the way that their relationship comes apart, but having watched Itsei, does it surprise you how things went with Tay and O coming out of Itsei? Uh, No, not at all. It actually seems really in keeping with the characters and their kind of styles and how they relate to each other and how they negotiated their relationship in Itse. I think it's really consistent. You heard it here first from our resident behavioral expert people. (laughs) Tay is not out of character. People get into kind of complementary roles in relationships. It can be kind of one person's job to do certain things and voice certain types of needs. And another person's job to do the things that that role isn't taking care of and voicing the needs that that person is afraid to voice, while maybe not voicing some needs that the other person is voicing. Big example of that is pursuing and distancing. A lot of relationships have some kind of imbalance between who's pursuing and who's distancing. The thing that I think kind of sums up pursuers and distancers is that it's about what you do when you're in distress. When a pursuer is in distress, they're looking for connection. And distancers, when they're stressed, they want to get away. Again and again, we see Tay just disappearing when he's distressed and kind of making it everybody else's job to track him down. You're taking us to church here. I want to come to Jenny. One aspect of the character stuff that came up during Moore's contribution, and it's come up with Susan as well, this idea of Tay being more of a lone wolf kind of character, whereas O always finds community. And when he moves to Bangkok, he finds queer community where Tay does not. I have always felt like part of the way that things went between them was because Tay had no community to talk to about the things that he was experiencing and feeling. I'm having so many thoughts in response to what Susan said and in response to your question. They both do seek connection, but Oeo is much more interested in community and friendships, in sharing himself in a fluid kind of balanced way. Tay has this intense drive for a one-to-one, deeply intimate, deeply entwined connection. He's not interested in friendships, especially. He wants people to like bind their lives with his. He wants people to like twist their identity into his. I want to go back to a couple of the things Susan was saying about the pursuer distancer dynamic first, which is that we do see Tay work very hard for the relationship in practical ways. Like he's the one keeping late hours and driving all over town to make sure he can spend the night with O. And he never once complains about that or resists that because he is devoted to O in this way. But he has a very rigid conception of what that looks like. And as soon as the idea that they're not on this same career path on the same path of artistic passion together as soon as that's shattered his idea of this unified partner that will walk aside him and share everything important in his life starts to crack 
and he starts to look away from Oeo and eventually to look to someone else for that kind of connection and bond that he feels like he needs. And for Tay, at this point, his understanding of his sexuality has become kind of a non-issue, whereas his binding of his romantic interest and his artistic passion is where all of his turmoil lives. Meanwhile, Oeo has made this wonderful friend group. I recently rewatched the series and their first interaction where he first meets Hugh and the other friends. The first time I watched it, I was so tense because O's loneliness and his homesickness is palpable and painful at that point in the story. And you just desperately want him to have somebody. And he sits down with this crowd of kids and you're not sure what's going to happen. It's not obvious right away that they're queer unless you're paying close attention. Like Q's fingernails are painted. There's little cues there, other things like that. And then within two seconds of meeting them, O.O. starts crying because he's so homesick. And I was like, oh God, what's going to happen? I'm so stressed for him. But these boys just like surround him. They're so sweet to him. And then it becomes clear right there you've established this is a queer friend group and and every time you see them together there's just all these indicators that like these are people that oh can be at home with can come into more of himself with uh can be supported by the way they hold him through the breakup makes me cry because it doesn't take away any of his pain but they're so there for him He's never alone and he's never unsupported. It makes a tremendous difference to how I think things go at the end. I don't think O gets to a place where he's able to come back to Tay at the end if he doesn't have that community support holding him really through his whole college career and especially through the breakup. I want us to delve into some of these different things that O's friends are supporting him through that Tay doesn't seem to have the same level of community on. Their initial conflicts, the early stuff that was happening, the things that are happening with them in year one, and particularly the giant fight that they had in episode two. I'm going to come to Shan for this. I love talking about how horrible Tay is in episode two of I Promised You the Moon because that boy was being rancid. But I also want to talk a little bit about how the seeds of that were sown in the little cracks that you saw in episode one. Thank you for allowing me to talk about Tay being rancid in episode two. That fight is brutal. It starts with Tay being so passive-aggressively awful to Oeo in front of other people. Oeo has come into this restaurant to sit with Tay and his seniors. These are people that Oeo is not particularly comfortable around. This is not a friendly crowd for Oeo. He is with people that he doesn't know well that are older than him that he wants to make a good impression on because they are important to Tay and he's Tay's partner. So for Tay to start taking digs on him under those circumstances and to just not let up and keep relentlessly going, no matter how many times everyone at the table tries to deflect him away from it, 
just so brutal to watch. And the seeds were planted pretty early on, right? This was seeded not even just in episode one of Epitome, but way back at the beginning of I Told Sunset About You. The original fracture in Tay and Oeo's friendship is because of Tay's inability to roll with Oeo acting in a way that he doesn't like. He's jealous of him. He's jealous of how easy things come to him. He is judgmental about Oeo's inability to stick with things or to know exactly what he wants. He looks down on Oeo a little bit for being a follower, for adapting the interests of the people around him. Now in college, Oeo gets to school and he's miserable and he realizes he doesn't actually want to do the thing he thought he was there to do. And, you know, let's not forget that Oeo is sitting in the program that Tay gave up for him. Now, Oeo never asked him to do that, of course. That was Tay's big dumbass mistake. But Oeo has the thing that Tay wanted and that Tay gave up in his mind for Oeo. And Oeo doesn't value it the way that he would. And he doesn't like it the way that he would. And he decides to give it up. And he gives it up to follow his new friends into their passion. Now, is that a totally fair way of looking at it? I don't think so. Oeo is clearly good at marketing. He has like a natural aptitude for it. It makes sense that he would go that way. But from Tay's perspective, he's just looking at, oh, following his latest friends into the thing they're doing. And he kind of sees it as part of that same pattern. So that was seeded so consistently throughout their relationship, that kind of tension point and the way that Tay judges Oeo for this kind of behavioral pattern that he has. And so to see that come out in that fight and for Tay's resentment of that to just continue to simmer and simmer and simmer to the point where he cannot keep it together, even in front of other people. And he embarrasses himself even more than he embarrasses Oeo in that scene with his seniors. It was such a brutal scene, but it also felt so real. It was such a real kind of fight that you see long-term couples get into where one of them just starts digging at the other, knowing all their weak points and knowing all the worst parts to hit. And that's what we watched Tay do in that scene. And all of it was so like deeply seated in the story that we knew exactly why it was happening. Doesn't make it any easier to watch. Now it's time to talk about that snake, Jai. And I'm going straight to more on this because more and I watched this together live while it was happening. <laughs> Come through more. Let's talk. Let's talk about Jai. Let's talk about Tay and Jai. Let's talk about how OAU clocked Jai. Just bring it out. That man. That man. The first thing that always comes to my mind that Nini and I would just rant on and we could not let it go because how could you is that freaking journal. The freaking journal. That was the most disgusting, manipulative. I can't think of something more insidious as a plot device to use. Not only is there a power imbalance already between these two, because yeah, they're not that far apart in age, but Jai is in a place that Tay wants to be in. He is succeeding in the area that Tay is dreaming of being in. Tay is already looking up to him so much. 
from the first time that he walks into the acting club, he's hearing from other people about how important Jai is, basically. So there's already an imbalance there. Jai is experienced. He obviously knows how to read people and use them very well. We see that from the beginning. So I feel like he saw Tay and just laser focused on him and using the journal the way he did. It was like he asked Tay to make him a manual. Go ahead, go ahead, Tay, write out to me how I can best wrap you around my little finger and use you, use you for my devices, use you to further my career, my dreams, my motivations. And once I have wrung you dry and left you with nothing, well, you know, whatever. I helped you. I, I helped you. It's not my fault. We're not in a relationship. We're, I mean, this is just professional. This is acting, Tay. That's how it is. I mean, so much of Jai and where they wound up and just that whole relationship, it comes back to that journal. Again, it was just like a manual of how to manipulate him. It was so disgusting. I was so angry. I'm getting angry now. I've never been so upset watching what felt like a slow motion car crash where Tay is just completely unaware of what is happening and how he is being played like a fiddle. And you just have to watch it go on. And because he's drifting away from O, there is truly nothing to help him. There are no guardrails. There are no safeguards at this point. And that's why to me, it was not shocking in the least what happened. As we saw in It's A, he just feels and feels and feels first. He does not think first. And the way that that whole relationship played out from the beginning, Tay was set up to fail. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. (laughs) Oh, no. God, I love that so much. My thing on Jai is when I saw Jai gaslighting Tay, that was one thing. But then when he tried to gaslight OAU, that was when I knew that he was a snake. And that was all I was ever going to think about him. But I think that Bookworm has some slightly different thoughts on Jai. So Bookworm, if you want to pull those out and tell us what they are. Well, make no mistake, Nini. I also hate Jai so passionately. But the thing that struck me as soon as I finished episode three with Jai and Tay kissing in that rehearsal room was that Tay tends to have trouble trying to separate what his ambitions are and what his desire is. When it comes to Jay, he is just somebody Tay looks up to, somebody who is ahead of Tay, who can guide him to the goals that Tay has set up for himself for so long. And immediately he transfers all of that longing and the visceral need onto Jai, he keeps lusting on the personification of his ambitions. And I would argue that he does the same thing in Itse as well. There are certainly other factors, but when we see how easily they got roped into Jai's schemes and how he let his heart sort of go with Jai wherever he pulled because he was blinded by the ambition and the achievements that he wants in his career. There is a shadow of that in Tay and O's dynamic 
in Itsei as well. Another thing that I tried to keep an eye on after episode three was that if there was no Oeo in Tay's life, would Jai be Tay's future self? Is that what Tay would become? There is certainly few things that Tay does that feel so close to what Jay did to him. For example, when he showed up on Torn's doorstep asking her to tell him that she loves him, but he doesn't want to say it back. It's not a far reach. You can see how they can easily become Jay. But there is also a part of him that I think is just not as ruthless. Like more mentioned, he is a human bulldozer. Everything he does is just chaos and he only stops and reflects when he has just demolished everything in his sight. But he does reflect, right? He stops and he thinks about it. He talks to Oyo whenever they stop and have a conversation after whatever mayhem has happened. They can go into his mind and he can point out where he's going wrong and he can see the things for himself without somebody else telling him this is where you're making mistakes. He would just spell it out by himself. He has that ability to identify the ways that he's hurting the people around him and the reasons that he's doing that. That is what sets him apart from Jai. So, 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 so accurate. Given everything that Bookworm just said about the similarities between Jai and Tay and the difference being Tay's ability to reflect versus Jai's, we're given indications in the show that Jai feels guilty. I don't buy them necessarily. But Jenny, do you think that Jai feels bad about what he did? Not that he wouldn't do it again, but do you think that he feels bad about what he did? So on my first watch, I read Jai more sympathetically than on my second watch, which is less because I knew what was going to happen on the second watch and more because I saw some of the nuances, small indicators he was giving that he was calculating the whole time. I do still think, like, Jai is not a monster. Jai is a human person. He clearly has the ability to see what he did to Tay. He knows how badly he hurt him and how he ruined that relationship. And I do think he feels a way about that. Like you said, Nini, he wouldn't do it differently. He's made his choices and he's never given any indication that he would ever put another human's feelings above his goals. And in his own way, he might think he is helping Tay because for Jai, the artistic achievement and the career achievement is more important. The ambition is more important than anything else. And if he got Tay to a place where he performed very well in that play, he got a request from an agent and it ended up launching his career. So Jai might look at that and say, see, I helped you because I gave you something that you really, really wanted. So what if I had to break your heart and this other person's heart and ruin your relationship to do it? 
So I think he has feelings about that, but I think Jai's priorities are such that he would never regret what he did. Anybody else have thoughts on that? I think that there was an intentional choice in the ending montage to show Jai reacting to the news that Tay and Oweo got back together to give us a little bit of a sense that Jai does remember. I don't think he regrets what he did to Tay and that relationship, but he cares a little bit about it enough to feel some sense of maybe relief that they were able to work through it and that whatever he did didn't totally destroy them forever. Frankly, I don't like the choice to show us that. I don't care about Jai. I don't care what he feels about it. But I do think that was included intentionally to kind of communicate to the audience. Like Ginny said, he's not a monster. He's a human. And he, very similarly to how we see Tay behave sometimes, he puts his ambitions first over the way he treats others. And I think they wanted us to see the humanity in that and not totally just write him off as a villain. He can kiss my ass. (laughs) Go more. Them showing us that scene, to me, was the final nail in the coffin of, okay, all right, my read on you, mm -hmm, it's been right this whole time. (laughs) Okay, yeah, Jai probably isn't a monster. But the thing is, from a personal perspective, I've known Jai's. Something that Nini and I talked about having backgrounds in the arts, dance, theater. We have seen Jai's. We know Jai's. I can see a Jai. I can spot one from 1,200 feet away. Okay, they're not monsters, but they are. The term gets thrown around way too much. But for me, they're the textbook definition of a narcissist who thinks that they are God's gift and that everyone is blessed by being in their presence. That they are the top dog, basically, and everyone else, they're collateral. Maybe they'll be useful. They're not out to necessarily get people, but they're definitely out to use people. And so showing us that scene, what will always stick with me is Jai's smirk. It wasn't a smile, in my opinion. Not a smile of, oh, you know, I'm glad that this worked out. It was a casual, over-the-shoulder, just a smirk. And then the casualness with which he walked off the screen, the fact that there were no words, there were no dialogue to me, it just spoke to how casually he viewed what he did, how it wasn't that big of a deal. And he's just going to move on. He's going to move on with his life. He'll probably never think of these people again. And to me, it really all comes down to intention. Tay may have done things that would have made him very similar to Jai, but Tay never had the intention to blatantly use people the way that Jai did. And while that doesn't make you a monster, it does make you a shitty human being. (laughs) That really makes all the difference. And that scene to me was showing us without words, Jai's intentions. Oh, yes. Let me tell you all about some of the nonsense that goes on backstage understage in the flies like some of the shit that i have seen (laughs) susan no i know you haven't seen i promise you the moon but like i said you're a resident behavioral expert so everything that you're hearing what's something that you want to bring forward here just as an aside what y'all are saying about these tendencies in the performing arts community as someone who spent a lot of my life in a community of musicians sounds familiar 
I was already thinking about a former partner of mine who once told me that his gift to the world was going to be his music and that my gift to the world was going to be how I facilitated him making his music. So, you know, I can relate to some of that stuff. So I was going to say there's something about Tay that seems contradictory on the surface. And that is he's clearly an incredibly sensitive person. I mean, just look at the crying. He clearly feels a lot, and yet he can act so unfeeling. And what I'm hearing about this other person, this person sounds like someone who doesn't start from the base of perceiving those emotions in the first place. It just doesn't hit them as hard, and they feel like they want more because it takes a lot to kind of register on your personal scale. So that's going to be my guess about this person. They're not already coming from a place of feeling for other people in a natural way. That's an educated guess. That's a very, very educated guess. I want to take that and sort of slide into the next idea. One of the things that struck me in the end of the show, particularly in episode five in that conversation that Tay and OAU have when they see each other again at the agency. Tay is talking to O about how he's having such a hard time coming up with his thesis play. And O is telling Tay, there's so much all around you. And I always tie that back to some of the things that Susan was talking about there that's also manifested in the way that Tay deals with his roommate. Tay is, in his mind, rejected by his roommate at the beginning. And he rejects him right back. So he doesn't even realize or notice when his roommate breaks up with his partner. So when he breaks up with Oyu in the end, he's hostile at this point to his roommate. He hasn't even tried ever to build a relationship with him. He's not interested in anything he does. And his roommate says to him, well, why do you think I wouldn't understand you? He realizes that he has not looked outside of himself at all. And that's something that comes up again in the conversation with Oyu. I think I rambled myself around a little bit, but I want to start getting into the end of the story and how that plays out and Tay's reflection on his own behavior, on how he's been treating people, on the fact that he's not good at paying attention to people and that has caused him problems in his life. Shan, I haven't come to you for a little while. I actually really love Tay's arc in the final episode after the big emotional episode where he makes a big, big mistake because he's not thinking things through, he gets time. He gets time away from OAO and time to move into a new phase of his life and time to start having some new experiences and even time to date somebody else after OAO and feel the difference in the quality of those relationships and what they do for him. We kind of see him start to process and understand that even though his ambitions are being realized, he is not fulfilled. He doesn't feel happy. He is an actor. He has a TV show. He's doing things he said he wanted to do. And he's dating somebody, his co-star, who is the perfect partner for that, right? She helps his career. They look great together. They have the same ambitions. She's very driven, just like him. And he's not into it. He's like, oh, this isn't really doing things for me emotionally that I thought it would. Having a partner who 
is exactly aligned with the things I want to do is maybe not actually going to give me the satisfaction and the fulfillment of my desires that I thought. And so I actually think that's really important arc for him. And then for him to then see OAO, have all of that activated, have all of those old feelings come back and realize that he actually wants to fight to get that relationship back. And he's bringing some of what he learned. And I mean, you know, he's still the same person. He still has to do everything in the most dramatic way possible. He has to make it a big grand gesture instead of a more organic attempt to reconnect with OAO. I love that in the resolution between them, what OAO says is not, I trust that this will never happen again, or I feel really confident now that we're going to like be great together. (laughs) What OAO says is, I understand who you are and I want to be with you. And what I'm asking from you is a commitment to like not go off and spin out the way that you normally do when shit happens because shit is going to happen again. And Tay seems pretty confident about his ability to like commit to that. I don't believe that Tay is never going to stray again. I don't. I think he's probably going to end up having feelings for someone else again. It's the way he is. He just gets obsessive about things that draw his attention. And I think that that's probably always going to be the case. And so one of the things that they're going to have to work through is figuring out how that works within the context of the relationship they have, what their boundaries are around that. And that necessitates communication. So that's kind of the commitment that they're trying to make. And the trajectory of that can look different. OAO at this stage in his life wants a monogamous relationship. Maybe that will always be the case. And then they'll have to figure out how Tay can control these impulses that he has to make that work. Maybe they're going to learn that if they want to stay together long-term, absolute monogamy maybe is not their solution. There are paths before them, but they have to talk to each other. They have to work it out together. And that's the commitment that they're making, that when shit gets hard, they will talk to each other. I really loved that. It felt like a very adult resolution. It felt very grounded in who they are as people and what they can reasonably expect of each other. It just felt so mature. And you just don't see that very often in BL. So I really loved it. I will say the Oweo side of that arc wasn't quite as strong for me. And I think it's a little bit evident in the way that this conversation has gone. Oweo, his characterization is not quite as strong as Tay's. I don't feel that the writing team had as much of a handle on exactly what they wanted to say with him and about him. So I do think there's a little bit of a missing piece to his part of this story. We saw that post-breakup, Oweo was kind of thriving on his own, actually. He's doing great. He did very well in school. He started his career. He's still got great friends. He's still got community around him. He is okay. He's content being single. And we saw that after Tay's first grand gesture, that he rejected him pretty firmly. He was like, no, you don't get to do this. This is not the way. And then we didn't really see a middle step before he then changed his mind and decided to jump back in both feet with Tay. And it's not that that doesn't feel right. It does. Because Oweo is always going to forgive Tay. Always. He said it himself. Have I ever left you, Tay? No, he hasn't. And he never will, probably. So it's not that it feels unrealistic. It's just that I wanted him to have a little bit more of an emotional arc there, similar to what we got for Tay. So that's my like small quibble with that. But overall, I loved the resolution for their relationship. I loved the way they came back together. And 
what the show said about the future in front of them. Have I ever left you, Tay, is probably my favorite line in all of I Promise You the Moon. I want to step to Bookworm here because I want to talk a little bit about Tay and reflection in the end of the story and the role of the play. How Tay uses it to reflect and try to reconnect with OAU and how OAU perceives that. We are very clear that Tay is somebody who does not like change, who keeps things going till it reaches that breaking point. I want to maybe reframe it a little bit and bring it back to the play. I think Tay tends to let things go because I think he does not like being in the present. He is constantly either thinking about the future or he's obsessed with something that has happened in the past. That's why Oeo was so pissed at that play because that is not the conversation that he wanted to have. That is not something that Oeo wants to even address at that point because they have moved past all of that and there are things that they have to talk about that has happened in the present and at the moment and Tay does not engage that way. It's just not his character, right? He doesn't do that. When we got to the ending and Oeo has this conversation with Tay about how he just wants to be in his life and he doesn't know where this is gonna go but he just wants to be together and then Tay does again just a chaotic maneuver and posts this Instagram picture and it's identifiable chaos right that's a Tay that we know but this time he is trying to solve a problem at the present. And that, I think, is how Tay has reflected. It may not be conscious. I'm pretty sure he has not sat down and worked through all of this. It's just that as the time moved, I think he has done the shift within himself. He has turned that chaos somehow into a tool that he can use to try to engage with the problems that they have to deal with in the present and not put it into the future so that it becomes such a huge ticking time bomb that just blows up on everybody's face or you just throw everything into the past and link it to some pivotal focal point that just shadows over everything else. Y'all are blowing my mind and I'm loving this whole experience. Ginny, Shan mentioned not having as clear an understanding of O in this final act as she does of Tay. And I feel like you're kind of an OA whisperer. So I don't know if you want to lean into your understanding and share with us what you're taking away from O in the final act of the story. I definitely see his arc and his journey is much more subtle and you have to be watching really closely, I think, to read some of what's happening. But what I saw, especially on my second watch, is that O.L., up until he hears that Tay has broken up with his co-star, 
he has a very clear story in his mind about the breakup and about Tay and why it didn't work out with him. And that story started when O.O. left acting. He knew that Tay wasn't okay with it. And even after they made up, Tay wasn't fully okay with it. And that degraded their relationship until the point of the Jay incident. O.A.O. was very clear that it was specifically an artistic partner that Tay was falling in love with. And it was that bond of having feelings for somebody that shared these ambitions was what pulled Tay into Jay's orbit and knew that he could never compete with that. And so the story I believe he's telling himself is that O.A.O. is never what Tay wanted or needed. Tay thought he did when he thought that O was going to be an actor and along his side. But as soon as O moved away from that path, he stopped being the life partner that Tay was looking for. One thing that always strikes me at the beginning of episode five is how happy O is to see Tay in his career success. He smiles when he sees him next to his actress partner on screen. He buys a magazine and he doesn't seem to carry any bitterness about that. He's genuinely so joyful for Tay and his success. So part of his story is that Tay has gotten what he always wanted. He's got his career and he's got this partner that shares his ambitions, which is what he's always wanted and needed what O couldn't be, and the reason they didn't work out. O has devalued himself in how he thinks Tay sees him. He does not fully see how important he is to Tay and how much he means to him. When he says, have I ever left you? It's very clear that O will always be by Tay's side until that point when he accepts what he believes to be true, which is that he's not what Tay needs. And then... He goes to the play. He rejects Tay immediately after the play. But I don't see that as a rejection of the idea of them getting back together so much as a, this is too much. Why are you throwing this at me right now? And then he looks at the messages. That, I think, is when he realized that he himself is what Tay wanted, not the artistic partner. And I think that's part of why he comes back to him. So I want to just ask a fun round robin question before we get to the end. What's everybody's favorite scene? And I promise you the moon. Let's start with Shan. I'm going to go for maximum pain. My favorite scene is Oeo confronting Tay after Tay, right in front of his fucking face, attempts to get into a relationship with Jai. I have PTSD from that scene to this day. I cannot believe what Tay did in that sequence. The way that he, right in front of O, was making moon eyes at Jai. The way that he went to talk to Jai to try to confirm that their feelings were mutual. The way that after Jai rejected him, he got up on stage to sing a song with O and started singing it at Jai, making leapy eyes at him. Literally right in front of O's fucking face. And then I love that O called him on it immediately. Hit him 
so hard with those flowers. <laughs> and I love that he just said, how stupid do you think I am? You're doing this right in front of me. I just loved how the show did not shy away from Tay's audacity in that moment, from how disconnected he had become from his reality. It was just the peak of his ability to delude himself and go into his obsessive episodes. And I just thought it was so well done. I think you and I are both fans of the angst and also the drama. Bookworm, what about you? Well, I'm going to continue Shan's rage and go into the next most painful scene, which was Tay going to Q's house to talk to Oeo and the conversation they have on the couch. Like I said before, when somebody tries so hard not to cry or when somebody's trying so hard to not say something that is just dying to get out of them and they're trying to hold back the words just to save themselves from the pain. Those are my favorite things. When Oeo finally breaks up with Tay and say gets up from the couch and walks away, there's a split-second frame where O turns back and you can see the longing in his face. He is devastated and he wants to say so many things, but he just holds it back and he watches Tay walk away. That was such a well-choreographed scene and how the actors performed it. It was just such a delight to watch. And I came close to breaking. I had tears in my eyes and just choked up in that scene. Maura, what about you? I am a hoe for well-done angst as well. So in a way, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have to go off about the quiet genius of the aquarium scene that was possibly the most beautiful parallel i've ever seen in a show and i see parallels everywhere i adore them and it's one that i will never get out of my head it was like tay was saying without words oh after all the pain i put you through after everything it took for us to get here i am taking us out of this underwater world we were in where we were hiding these feelings and I was terrified to show it to the world. And now I'm choosing you in front of the world. I don't give a damn who sees us. And yet it's in the same sort of environment where he first really let himself feel what he was feeling, that he let himself feel that desire and to show it to O. That underwater scene in Itze was so pivotal for them. To go from that, and that that's the only way that Tay is willing to show him affection, is hidden underneath the surface of the water, away from the world, to then be in this open aquarium in Bangkok, the biggest city in Thailand, and he is kissing him. I get chills. I get chills. It was so well done, and it was done without words. You can't beat it for me. You just can't. Jenny, I'm going to come to you. What's your favorite scene in all of I Promise You the Moon? 
First, I have to stop crying about the aquarium scene because everything Moore said was true. My favorite scene is in episode five when Tay and O.O. first see each other at the agency. Coming into that scene the first time, I was really feeling like I care deeply about both these boys. I want them to be happy, but I don't really care if they get back together. And I think maybe they shouldn't. As soon as they saw each other, the gravity of what pulls them together sets in for both of them. And you see the longing that still pulls them together. And I went, oh, never mind. I need them together again. It's the same thing that is still my most vivid impression from It's a the intensity of the love and desire that they have for each other and how vital that is to both of them. One of the things that really impresses me in I Promised You the Moon is how naturally they play each stage of the relationship. When they're playing partners who have been together for three years, they feel like partners who have been together for three years. It feels lived in. It feels comfortable. It feels a little bit stale in the way that things can get if you're not paying attention, but still full of affection. It feels so right for that stage. But as soon as you've had them separated and then seeing each other again, all of that desire comes rushing back. And I love it. It is about the desire, but it's also just about the deep roots of that connection that they share because they've known each other so long and they go so deep in each other's lives. And the way that that instantly revitalized my personal emotional investment in their relationship was just so powerful. I'm going to hold my scene for when I'm talking to Ben after in the outro, but great, great scenes from everybody. We're going to close out with Susan because I have to ask Susan the very important question. Okay, Susan, you've been sitting here, you've been listening to this entire conversation, and I just want to know, are you going to go and watch I Promised You the Moon now? Oh, how could I not? I feel like having this conversation, it seems almost like a boost where I would be more at a point watching I Promised You the Moon for the first time. It would be more like having a second viewing for my first viewing. That's one of the reasons I actually, like I said, I like to be spoiled. It tells you where to put your attention. I'm going to definitely be looking in different places, thinking about different things beforehand in a way that I think would be better than if I watched it just cold. Mission accomplished. (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to wrap this up here. We could keep talking forever, but we got to go. Ben, so you were looking in the background of that recording. And unlike me, you actually heard what we said. And now having listened to the edit as well, what are some of your thoughts? I gotta be honest. I was not chatting with you like I normally am recording. So I was very drunk while you all were recording for two hours. (laughs) I did not remember the middle of the recording at all. (laughs) I'm sorry, I was not present. (laughs) (laughs) But you have heard the edit, so. Oh, everyone sounded so good. I really liked the conversation you guys had getting into 
the fact that Tay was always like this. There was this huge pushback when the show was originally airing that Tay was acting out of character and that they had somehow misunderstood their own characters and ruined them. But I really liked that the panel was very much about how Tay was always this way. And Jai knew that about him and used that against him. I also love that you all hated Jai. That was so fun to listen to again on the recording. I was very conscious for Bookworm going off about Jai because she hates him so much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also glad that we were able to get more on the podcast twice. We do not talk about more often in our recordings, but know that they are one of our favorite people. And that they were able to make time to be with us twice is a real gift. I did quite enjoy what we're referring to as the fuck Jai portion of the panel. I was gratified to find out that Bookworm hates Jai probably just as much as more me. <laughs> I think one of the things listening back to the panel that I really obviously wanted to get across was the fact that Tay has always been this way. This is how Tay always was. This is how Tay probably in some ways ever shall be. And to say otherwise is to basically ignore the Tay of Aito's Antarabochi. I think that... When it comes to Tay and I told Santa about you, people got bogged down in the romance and forgot all the bullshit. And my God, was Tay full of bullshit. (laughs) So watching Tay's bullshit continue and him eventually learn to try to curtail it slightly, that was a delightful journey, the way that I saw it. I quite enjoyed that. I really liked Jenny bringing forward the discussion about O's friend group and the queerness of that friend group, because I don't think I grokked it the first time that any of them other than Q were queer. But having watched some of the scenes after Jenny pointed them out, it's very obvious. And I think that that's really well done, because they're queer for the people who know queer people. They're just O's friends for the people who don't. And I liked that. In the ending, I did a round robin with the gang about everybody's favorite scene. Because you know me, I'm a scene bitch. I will always find a favorite scene, whether it's in an episode or in an overall show. I will always want to know what everybody's favorite scene is. I feel like that's better than a personality test. (laughs) So what was your favorite scene And I promised you the moon. Right now, it is the scene, I believe it's in episode four with Mech. When he talks about how Tay never showed any interest in him. Because he's only just mildly hurt and disappointed in Tay about it. And it caps off like another episode of Tay just spiraling in his own bullshit again. It stands out because 
Mech was like, bro, we've been here for years, and you ain't said shit to me. And that's basically Tay. He's so rigid. Either people fit into his vision of his life or they don't. And they don't exist if they don't fit into his vision. And it was kind of rude of him to just presume that about his roommate right away, who was clearly trying to make overtures of friendship to him for like two to four years. That scene is currently the one that comes to mind when you ask. That or Boz coming back to be like, are we still talking about this man? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> My favorite Bilkin PP scene is probably when they put PP in O's shirt with his heart cut out and he's watching Tate look at Jai when they're supposed to be singing a song together. And then he beats him with the flowers. I feel like OAU beating Tay with those flowers, it was a pivotal and necessary moment. At the time, it cleared my skin. It watered my crops. <laughs> it fed, nourished, and sustained me. I rewound it several times. I asked more to make gifts. There's so many good scenes in that show. Can you not pick a favorite? Or does your favorite rotate? It rotates. I think what's interesting is my favorite scenes in I Promise You the Moon are not with O and Tay. My favorite scene that PP does from a work standpoint that I think is one of PP's best is the audition scene where he's faced with homophobia. And you can see his decision to quit acting happening in real time. Like, I thought that was really, really good. I also really like the scene where Tay is mean to Kim because she can't make acting work. Because Tay is so wrong in that scene. I also go back and forth a lot. But I think if I had to count an absolute favorite scene... It's the Jai kiss. <laughs> it's the Jai kiss because O catches it. He's like, that rat bastard! It's the Jai kiss for a lot of reasons. The filmmaking in that scene is so impressive. The way that they build the tension of the scene of you watching Tay make this terrible, horrible mistake and then intercutting between OAU coming to find him and him getting closer and closer to Jai and then him laying one on Jai, and then that long dolly shot of OAU spotting them through the door of the rehearsal room. So you just see OAU's face, you see it change, and then there's this long dolly shot that pulls back into the rehearsal room, and then you see Giante making out. The filmmaking is just next level, like... Everything about it, the shot selection, the music, the sound, the camera work, perfection. So with that said, we've come to the end of our I Told Sunset, I Promise You the Moon third anniversary retrospective. That's it from us. We're about to wrap this up. We'll see you next time. We out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace. Peace.